Today's scripture reading is Matthew 4, 1 through 11. If you don't have a Bible, you can follow along in your bulletin or on the screen behind me. Hear the word of the Lord. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Then the tempter approached him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. He answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city, had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He will give his angels orders concerning you, and they will support you with their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus told him, It is also written, Do not test the Lord your God. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And he said to him, I will give you all these things if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus told him, Go away, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil left him, and angels came and began to serve him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, peace be with you. I'll tell you what, I was just thinking this morning of how thankful I am, number one, that the Lord would save me and, and allow me to be a part of the church, but specifically how grateful I am for this church. It is truly a joy and an honor to uh, be with you and to uh, be one of the pastors and one of the members uh, to serve alongside you. Uh, let's pray. Gracious Father, thank you so much for this time. Thank you for this moment. I pray, Father God, that you would allow us to be fully here, fully present for your name's sake and glory. Thank you for the songs that's been sung, for uh, the servants who have served, for the people who are present. I know at this moment that it is, it is a spiritual moment. There's spiritual warfare. There are distractions that Satan would try to turn our attention to. There are doubts. There are fears. There, for some of us, is a, a, a numbing feeling as we're just here because we're supposed to be. Many of us are filled with doubt, with fear, and yet, Lord, we come and submit and surrender that to you. I pray that you will have your way for your name's sake and for your glory. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable to you, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, everyone who is greatly blessed will be greatly tested. Everyone who finds themselves in Christ is greatly blessed. And I believe as a result, we'll find themselves being greatly tested and tempted by Satan. And with that reality comes a reality of uh, us being tempted in ways in which maybe we uh, don't know or understand or uh, we get to a point where we become numb to our temptations and maybe we embrace them or to see them 
as being a part of us or a part of our struggle. And we can get to a place where we no longer uh, see it as a spiritual matter and as something that should be taken seriously. Russell Moore in his book on Matthew chapter 4, uh, verses 1 through 11, entitled Tempted and Tried, talks about this, uh, this effect. And he uses the analogy of cows who are going to the slaughter and how there was a, a point in time where it was really hard to kind of to, to herd them, to get them together and to take them to a slaughter because the, the cows knew what was coming and they would fight back. But then he reports about a scientist who began uh, to experiment with the cows and how he can lead them quietly to their death. More rights. The scientists began to experiment, not with prodding cows off a truck, but by leading them quietly onto a ramp where they walk through a squeezed chute. A gentle pressure device designed to mimic a mother's nuzzling touch, then the cattle continued down the ramp into a smoothly curving path. No sudden turns, a path designed to give the cows a sense that they are going home. And as they mosey along the path, they don't even notice that their hooves are no longer touching the ground. A conveyor belt slowly, gradually lifts them upward. And then in a twinkling of an eye, a blunt instrument levels a surgical strike right between their eyes. They've transitioned from livestock to meat. And they're never aware enough even to be alarmed by any of it. And in many ways, the American church, Sojourn Community Church, you and me, we can find ourselves on a conveyor belt, so to speak, where we begin to live very routine and apathetic lives, coddling sin, mosling along, all the while not realizing that we have an unseen real enemy who is luring us to sleep and at just the right opportune time when the stakes are at his highest, he's ready to strike, to take us out, to give us a death blow that would split us and wedge us from our identity in our relationship with Christ. And this text tells us that Jesus, who has just been baptized, who has just seen the heavens open, who's just had a dove, uh, the Holy Spirit, descend on, upon him like a dove and receive affirmation from the Father, is led to the wilderness by the Holy Spirit to be tempted by the devil. And it's important that we see that Satan is about to attack Jesus and that God is going to allow him to Jesus to be tested. And the reason that Satan is going to uh, tempt Jesus is because he wants to devour Jesus. He wants Jesus to fail. And the reason that God is going to allow Jesus to be tested is because he, God, is, is up to something. And so as we look at this, we want to see that that the, the, the pressure is, is uh, it's a significant moment in the life of Jesus. Affirmation has just happened, and Satan's going to deal with them. Now, theologically speaking, it's important for us to understand the difference between testing and tempting, to see that God does not tempt one, but he does allow us to be tested. 
Satan tempts us, and he tempts us because he wants to destroy us. In James chapter 1, verse 13 through 15, we read this truth. No one undergoing a trial should say, I am being tempted by God. Since God is not tempted by evil, and he himself doesn't tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desire. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. God does not tempt anyone. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 2, we see Moses speaking to the children of, of Israel. He calls them to remember the Lord. He says, remember that the Lord your God led you on the entire journey, these 40 years in the wilderness so that he might humble you and test you to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commandments. So Israel, who has been delivered from Egypt, redeemed from slavery, God has crushed the highest power of that time, Pharaoh, and he is, he is leading his children. They uh, go past the Red Sea. Uh, they experience baptism, so to speak, just as Jesus does. And now they're led into the, into the wilderness by God. And they're in the wilderness. And a journey from the wilderness to their promised land was supposed to take 40 days. But it ends up taking 40 years as they are tested and tempted over and over. And collectively, they fail the test over and over and over again. And in Deuteronomy chapter 8, we learn why they are tested. They are tested in order that they would experience God, be brought to humility, and so that it says, so that they will know what was in your heart. Now, it's not so that God would know what was in their heart because God already knows what is in his heart. God knows you. He knows me. It's so that they would know what was in their heart. See, God leads us to the wilderness. He leads us to places of drought, to seasons of drought, to seasons of hunger, to seasons of, of thirst, to, to seasons uh, that are intense with longing and, and with desire so that we can be dependent upon him. As a deer plants for the water, so my soul longs for you, O Lord. And he allows us to be tested so that we can know what is in our, in our own heart so that we can run to him and allow him to form us, to shape us, and so that we can experience his grace providing for us. And yet, the Bible says that we have a real enemy who has a different desire, a different goal. And in verse 1, this enemy has a name, and it's our first introduction to him in the Gospel of Matthew. His name is the devil. And we see uh, a little later in verse 2 that he's called the tempter. And we see a little later that he is called Satan. And each of these names mean simply that the devil is the one who splits. He's the adversary. Uh, Satan is the one who accuses. We have a real enemy. The Bible doesn't say that he appears to Jesus in physical form. It actually doesn't give us details. It doesn't give us a picture of him having horns. It doesn't give us a picture of him having a tail. It doesn't give us a picture of him being red. It doesn't even tell us if he's physically there. In fact, I'm, uh, I'm more led to believe that he wasn't physically there, that the warfare that Jesus experienced here in the wilderness is a warfare of the mind. It is him supernaturally uh, casting doubt on Jesus's mind and, and putting thoughts into his mind and giving him visions. But it's a real enemy who's coming. And apparently this enemy has studied Jesus. 
and you have a real enemy who is observing you, who is studying you, who has done his homework on you, on me, on the church, on God's kingdom, and he is angry, he is frustrated, he is, he is mad. He is mad as H-E double hockey sticks because he knows his destiny. He knows what is coming. He knows that he has been defeated. He knows that the war is already won and he's trying to throw a fit and he wants company. He wants to destroy the image of God. He wants to destroy your joy. He wants to kill your peace. He wants to distinguish your hope. He hates God's kingdom. He hates God's son. He's done his homework. You don't believe me? Look at the text. The text says that Jesus finds himself in the wilderness. Just as Israel was led into the wilderness after crossing the Red Sea, Jesus is led into the wilderness by the Spirit after baptism. And the Bible says that he fasts. We don't know why he fasts. Maybe he's fasting because in the wilderness there's not much food. He's like, yo, I'm not really about that John the Baptist diet. Just rather go hungry. Maybe he's fasting as a model of, of discipline to identify with Moses, who fasted for 40 days on Mount Sinai and received the Ten Commandments from God. We don't know why, but he's fasting. But the Bible does say the brother is hungry. And the devil knows he's hungry. And his first of three temptations is, is aimed at his hunger. Satan knows your story. He knows your weaknesses. And he will come. And he will test you on those weaknesses. And he's not going to give up. He's going to be resilient. And he's going to test your identity. He's going to test to see if you believe what God has said about you. If you believe that you are son or daughter of God. And he's coming. And he comes for Jesus. Look at what he says to him. If you are the son of God or since you are the son of God, tell these stones to be bread. Become bread. And so what does he tempt Jesus with right here? He tempts Jesus with self-gratification. He tempts Jesus with instant gratification. He tempts Jesus by attacking his identity, saying, Jesus, since you are the son of God, since you have power, uh, you can actually gratify yourself in the moment as opposed to being hungry. I mean, after all, you are the son of God, right? Like, after all, God has just opened up the heavens and, and allowed his spirit to be poured out on you. I mean, after all, you belong to him. You are loved by him. Like, like do you deserve to be in the wilderness hungry? You hungry? Like, you can make these stones turn to bread. I mean, and he can, right? In Matthew 14 and 15, we see he's going to, he's going to uh, make a, a little boy's lunch become a, a buffet for over 5,000 and 7,000 men, not including women and children. Like he can make bread appear. So Jesus, if you can make bread appear, why don't you just make it appear here in the wilderness? Feed yourself. You see, the problem is, is this. Son of man did not come to serve, to be served, but to serve. Son of man is on God's divine timeline. The son of man goes where God says goes and does miracles when God empowers and tells him to do miracles. 
Satan wants him to use his power at this moment, not to fulfill God's will, but to prove his own sonship and God's love for him. I mean, after all, if, if Jesus really is a son of God, should he really be hungry? I mean, you, you really, if you're really, like, if you're really the child of God, should you be lonely? Like, like if you really belong to God and he really loves you, shouldn't he have sent you a companion by now? I mean, if, if God really loved you, like, you wouldn't be living check to check, would you? Like, if he really loved you, you wouldn't have been born with this, with this, with this illness. If he, if, he, if he really loved you, like, if he really loved you, like, he would have he already provided in this way for you, wouldn't he? So maybe he doesn't love you. Maybe, maybe, I got, maybe what you need to do is you need to make it happen. Maybe what you need to do is you need to get an extra job so that you can keep up with the Joneses and provide. Maybe what you need to do is stop looking at Christian men and Christian women and like hit up the club scene for a while and like date somebody who doesn't love the Lord because it's better be with someone who doesn't love Jesus but loves you than with someone um, with no one. Like maybe that's what you should, like if God really loved you, like would you be barren? Oh, he knows how to strike. Like, if he loved you, would you have been abused? Listen, you have an enemy. He's not playing with you, and he's not playing with me, and he's observed you. And what does Jesus do? Jesus, in this moment of intense hunger, rather than gratify himself in the moment, rather than satisfy himself in the moment, he speaks truth to Satan, and he quotes the book of Deuteronomy to Satan, and he says, ah, I acknowledge, yes, bread is important. He says, he doesn't say bread is not important. He says, yes, but man should not live by bread alone. I know bread is important, but there's something more important, and it is every word that proceeds out of God's mouth. What is he saying? God has already told me that he loves me. God has already told me that I'm his son. I'm going to hold on to that and not operate in self-gratification in the moment, and I'm going to wait on the Lord. But Satan, man, I'm telling you, Satan, that brother, slithering snake. He's like, oh, I got you. So you smooth. Okay, you know the Bible. You're holy. I can be holy too. Watch this. Look at what he does. Then the devil took him to the holy city, which is Jerusalem, had him stand on a pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if or since, since you are the son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, now he's going to quote Psalm 91, verse 11 through 12, a psalm in context, which basically is a psalm about protection, that the person who hides under the shadow of the Almighty is one who will be protected by God. He's like, okay, you want to quote the Bible? I can quote the Bible too. I've been around a little time. I've done a little studying. So he dusts off his Bible. <laughs> Doesn't the Bible say... This is a tactic of the enemy. He has a way of just like inserting a little doubt. Doesn't he do this with Adam and Eve? Didn't God say? Like, doesn't the Bible say like he will give his angels orders concerning you and they will support you with their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone? Like, doesn't God say like if you really belong to him that he will protect you? 
well, if the Lord says that, why don't you just throw yourself off the temple? Like, like see if he is really for you. Like, put him to the test. And what does Jesus do? I think Jesus was reading the book of Deuteronomy and his read the Bible in a year, like, program. Because he quotes Deuteronomy back to him. He's like, ah, yeah, I was studying that this week. Uh, do not test the Lord your God. He throws scripture back at him. He said, yeah, yeah. The Bible does say that, but the Bible also tells me not to put the Lord, my God, to the test. See, God doesn't have to prove his love and his faithfulness to me by, coming, by doing something specifically for me as if he exists to serve me. I exist to serve him. Man, but Satan doesn't give up. It's like, ah, let me, let me up the ante a little bit, Mr. Holier Than Thou. Let me try a different approach. So I'm not going to use the word because you've proven you know the word. So let me, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain. Again, I don't believe that this is him uh, physically going somewhere. I mean, he could be transporting him somewhere quickly, but this is more than likely a vision, visions in which Satan is given Jesus. And he shows him all the kingdoms of the world. There's no mountain like Everest. You can stand on the top. You're not going to see all the kingdoms in the world, right? But he takes him and he he probably gives him this vision, all the kingdoms of the world. I mean, he sees them all. He sees all this plush living. He sees all these like fancy camels, right? I don't know. <laughs> like all these leather Jordans. He's like, yo, you can have it all, right? You can have it all. He says, all this I'll give you if you just bow down and worship me. What, what's Satan doing here? Like, is he bluffing? Like, does he not have power? I mean, if Satan can't give him that, it's like an easy temptation. Like, yo, you can't give this to me. This isn't a hard thing. But if he can, like, this is a real temptation. And I think he can. I mean, the Bible speaks at least five different times in a way that would lead us to believe that, that Satan is actually in control of this present evil world. It says that he is the prince of this world that he is positioned in powers and he has principalities. Like, like he's, he's running this world through people who have not given their hearts to Jesus. Like, like through the heart of man, he is introducing greed and, and, and consumerism and power. Like he, and what he's tempting Jesus with is this. He's saying, oh, Jesus, like I've done my homework. I've read the word. I know who you are. I've been following this story. I see that you are supposed to be the Messiah and that according to Isaiah 53, that this Messiah is going to suffer. And I can put this together. There are other people, they can't put it together, but I can put it together. That you're going to suffer and that you are also going to reign. So here's what I'm offering you. What I'm offering you is a crown without a cross. What I'm offering you is a life of comfort without crucifixion. What I am offering you is a life of ease. See, God, your father, is going to give you a, 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 a rulership, but, but he's going to make you suffer. And Yo, isn't that how he comes to us, though? And these subtle ways of... Like, if, if God really loves you, would he allow you to be going through this? Like, if he really loves you, would he allow you to be suffering? Like, take the easy road. Take the road of instant gratification and no suffering. But what does Jesus do? He quotes Deuteronomy, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. 
What is Matthew showing us? Why did the Spirit lead Jesus into the wilderness? What Matthew is showing us, and the reason the Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness, is to show us a a way forward. A way forward, not in human strength, not in human ingenuity, uh, not, not, like not in, in, in our own uh, power, but a way forward in Christ Jesus. See, Jesus, Jesus is the new Israel. Jesus is the true Israel. When Israel were led into the wilderness after God miraculously saved them from Egypt and through the Red Sea, after God affirmed to them that, that they were his only son, and they failed over and over and over and over in the wilderness, Matthew is showing us that Jesus is the Israel, the true son of God, the one who is truly out of Egypt, who would not fail, but who would prevail. He would not take Satan's bait, but he would prevail. And the reason this is important for us to see is not so us, the big takeaway is not be like Jesus, but the big takeaway is worship him. To see that he is your substitute, that, that where you fail and don't prevail, he will prevail so that you can have a relationship with God. It's an invitation for you to receive God's grace, for you to see that Jesus got into the baptism waters for you and like you, and that he entered into the wilderness like you and for you so that you would not be condemned when you go to the wilderness and fail, but that you, by placing your faith and trust in him, become a part of this new Israel. You you receive forgiveness and grace And not only do you receive forgiveness and grace, but the power to grow and to learn to trust. But not only is Jesus the new Israel, but Jesus is the new Adam. Where Adam and Eve fell to Satan's condemnation and and into sin because they doubted God's word and their sonship, Jesus would not. Romans chapter Five. So then, as through one trespass, there is condemnation for everyone. So also through one righteous act, there is justification leading to life for everyone. For just as through one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So also through one man obedience, the many will be made righteous. The law came along to multiply the trespass, but Where sin multiplied, grace multiplied even more so that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace will reign through righteousness, resulting in eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Verse 21. Oh, it's up there. (laughs) So also grace will reign through righteousness, resulting in eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so what is he saying? Sin came into the world through Adam, and this is what we believe as Christians. God created Adam and Eve. He put them in the perfect garden. He gave them one command, don't touch, don't eat of this tree. Satan came and tempted them, got them to doubt God's goodness, painted a picture of this one tree, and said that the reason God doesn't want you to have this tree is because he's trying to keep you, in essence, from joy. He's trying to keep you from being like him. Adam and Eve ate from the tree that was in the garden. Sin entered the world. As a result, the world is fallen. The world is separated from God. As a result, there is pain. There is suffering. There is sin. 
And what Romans chapter 5 teaches us is that God sent Jesus into the world as a new Adam, as a new man. And where Adam and Eve would sin and would fall short, Jesus would not, so that life would now enter into the world through him. And whoever would place their faith and trust in him, rather than be condemned and rather than experience eternal separation from God, they will have eternal life. And if you're here today and you are not a Christian, and perhaps a friend invited you, or if you say that you're a Christian, but you look at your life and your life is, is not marked by uh, faith in Christ, your life is not marked by submitting and surrendering to him, my invitation for you today is for you to find life in him. Because there's only two type of people in this world. There's only people who are in Adam or who are in Christ. Either people who trust themselves and who are living life for their own advantage, living life for self-gratification, looking at God as one who exists to serve them, or there's the person who has turned from a life that is committed to their own advantage, whose life is now lived for God's advantage, who is now learning to trust God and to submit to his lordship and his ways, to live a life not of reactivity, but a, a life that says, Lord, I exist for you. And I'm going to commit my life to learn to trust you. And you may be a Christian, a person who says that you're a Christian and who come to church repeatedly and all the time. But yet when you look at life and your main thought, if your main thought and the main way you live is life is about me and God exists for me, I'm telling you to repent and turn to trust in Christ. God does not exist for you. You exist for him. Four applications. The first application of this text for us today is to trust and obey. To replace a life of self-gratification and, and a prosperity gospel with a life that says, Lord, I surrender to you. Lord, help me to trust and to obey you. God does care about your obedience. The end of the book of Matthew, Jesus is going to give the church a command to go and to make disciples of all nations. And listen, listen to what he says, teaching them to obey all that I had commanded. And he's not pointing them back to the Old Testament, but he's pointing back to the, to the greatest commandment, which is to love the Lord your God with all your, your heart, mind, and soul, and to love your neighbor as yourself, which is what was being taught in Deuteronomy chapter 6 to Israel. God is calling you and me to a life of trust and obedience, a life that takes sin seriously, that sees that Christ died for our sin, but that does not look with failure and defeat when we sin, but who looks to our advocate, Jesus Christ, but who says, Christ died for my sins. Therefore, I'm not going to just take my, sin, my sins. I'm not going to play with it. I'm not going to coddle it. I'm not going to say that this is the thing that I get to have. This is the thing that I get to hold on to. No, Christ died for that, and he died to free you so that you would not be a slave to sin. And the way in which you grow to not be a slave to sin is to look 
to what he's done for you, to receive his grace, his love, to cement yourself in your identity and to move forward. Psalm 131, the psalmist says, Lord, my heart is not proud. My eyes are not haughty. I do not get involved with things too great or too wondrous for me. A lot of times what's behind our habitual uh, doubt and uh, sinfulness is pride. Is us thinking, is me thinking more highly of myself than I ought? Is me thinking that I deserve a crown without suffering? Is me thinking that I should never go hungry because I belong to God? It's me thinking I know better than God, that if God really loved me and if he really knew what he was doing, then my life would be easier. And the psalmist here gives us a good word. He says, Lord, my heart is not too proud. My eyes are not haughty. I do not get involved with things too great or too wondrous for me. I don't know why you haven't met me with this need. I don't know why you haven't cleared this up in my life. I don't know why other people get to experience something that seems basic and I don't. I thought about it this morning. I had a little, a, a little pain that kind of reminded me of an of a illness that the doctors really don't know what it is that happens in my body. And I had a moment just of anxiety and fear because what happens is I'll feel and experience this illness. It'll shut my body down. I'll experience like swelling and I can't, I literally like just can't walk for like a week or two. I mean, you guys know, I, last time it hit me, I was preaching in the middle of a sermon. My body shut down. And this morning I had this small little feeling. And, and maybe it was real. Maybe it wasn't. But I, it's almost as if I was in spiritual warfare where I just can feel Satan just saying, like, man, this is going to happen today. And if this happens, you need to just quit. You need to just give up. Right? You, you need to just throw in a towel. It'll be embarrassing. You'll look like a fool. This is confirmation that this is not really what God wants you to do. He wants you to do something else. And so he's going to break your body down and take away something that you feel called to and that you love. Right? And I had to remind myself of what I was going to preach. Like, Lord, I don't know why you allow this to happen that's too, that's, too, that's too lofty, that's too wonderful for me to know. But what I do know is that you love me. And this is what the psalmist does in verse number two. Instead of reacting in fear, instead of believing the lies of the enemy, he says, I have calmed and quieted my soul like a winged child with his mother. My soul is like a winged child. Now, what's, what is it about a winged child that's able to find comfort? See, a winged child goes back to his mother. He's no longer on, on his mother's milk. But he has experienced his mother coming through time and time again for him to meet his needs. That even though he doesn't need his mother's milk or she doesn't need her mother's milk, she is now able to find comfort in their mother's presence. And in times of anxiety, rather than freak out, this child is going back to their mother and finding their mother's presence as comfort. And God's invitation to you and God's invitation to me in the midst of our doubts, in the midst of our tests, in the midst of our trials, is to calm our soul and to remember that God loves us. To remember that, that yes, there, yes there's, 
There's things that are unresolved and that hurt us. But there has always been, because we've always been a part of a broken world. And he has always come through. He may not have come through like we wanted him to or the way that he wanted us to, but he always comes through. And so God's invitation for Israel was to remember, yo, I brought you out of Egypt. Yo, I delivered you from, from slavery. I freed you from Pharaoh and I did it miraculously. I like had fun doing it. I was just showing off with like flies and like turning stuff like to be clear and some blood and like, like I showed out for you. Like remember, I split it like this thing called the Red Sea. <laughs> I allowed you to cross it on dry ground. And then to show you that I'm for you, I allowed your enemies to drown in it as they were chasing you. I gave a pillar of fire and a cloud to show up to you when you didn't know what direction to go. I've been there for you in the past. I'll be there for you in the present. Stop. Stop acting like an orphan, Jamal, and trust me. And so what if I do take your health from you? Or if I do allow something that you love and that you you enjoy doing to, to not be there for a season or at all. Not so what, because that, that does impact us and that does hurt. But the invitation is, will you trust me with the next phase of your life? Like, will you trust that I'm able to be bread for you? Will you trust me that I'm able to be a father to the fatherless? Will you trust me that I'm able to be a, a bomb in Gilead? A, will you trust me that I'm able to be a lawyer in a courtroom, a doctor in a sick room? Will you, will you trust me that I'm able to satisfy you? Second, fight doubt and suspicion by knowing and applying God's word. Like Jesus doesn't play with Satan. What he does is he, he's been in the word enough, Luke 2, 52. He's, he's disciplined himself enough to learning the word. And not so that he can just check something off the box and be a, a better Messiah. But because he really believes that his substance comes from what God has said. And so he has meditated for years on the word so that when Satan attacks him, he attacks him back with the character of God. He, he reminds Satan of what the word says. And here's my, here's my conviction, y'all. And, and this is the truth. Like, too many of us in the church are just malnourished. Too many of us in the church, like, we just don't, we struggle over and over with God's word, with God's love for us because we honestly don't know. Like we have, we have not conformed our mind, transformed our mind and conformed our mind to God's mind by going to God's word. And so when we, when we are put in tough situations, we respond in the flesh because honestly we filled ourselves so much up with, with a secular way of, of reasoning and seeing things. And so when we get poked, we poke back, not in the way that the Spirit tells us to poke back with the, with the Word of God, which is a sword, but with the flesh. 
And so my invitation to you is to go to the Word. And listen, I know you're the President of the United States, and you are the most important person in the world. I understand that you are the busiest person in the world, okay? Like, I know you're busy. I understand. You're busier than me, right? But listen, I don't care how busy you are. Just as you eat physical food, what Jesus is saying, you need spiritual food. And you need to go to the word regularly to remind yourself of what God has said about you. You need to learn to, we need to learn to hide God's word into our hearts. And I understand that doesn't seem cool and that doesn't seem hip and you look lame walking in a coffee shop with your Bible. But listen to me. And this isn't an overemphasis. This is real. Like, keep being lazy, keep making excuses, and die. I'm tired of seeing people who see themselves as mature, who lean on their last 25 years of walking with Jesus, spin out, abandon their family, abandon their church, abandon truth, And the reason they do it when you get deep down into it is they, they, they no longer allow God's word to be the center of their life. And this isn't to say like, listen, there's no condemnation, but get in the word. Like take some time off, just like you would with anything else. Schedule some time where you can sit down and just read. And if you can't read it in large chunks, take a verse and own that verse for the week. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Goodness gracious, meditate on it. The, it's only one Lord. Lord, he is Lord, I'm not Lord. Is. You can just stop on it, he just is. <laughs> my, he's mine's shepherd. He's the one who's leading me. And then apply it to your life. Meditate on it. David, the busiest man in the Bible, perhaps, king of Israel, meditated on a day and night. And when he didn't, you know what happened. <laughs> Third, wake up to the reality that spiritual warfare is all around you. There's an unseen realm. You are in the midst of of a war. You are in a war. There is a war going on. You can be, we can be cute as we want to, but cute soldiers are dead soldiers. <laughs> Satan wants to kill, steal, and destroy. He is a lion that is seeking to devour you. And he does it in subtle, simple ways. He has studied you. He sees my arrogant behind and he sees your arrogant behind and he's coming after us. He's coming after your marriage. He's coming after your sanity. He's coming after your friendships. He's coming after your belief in God. And if you don't believe that there's an unseen world, if you think that's just fanciful, fanciful, come holler at me three years from now because I guarantee you, you will either be holding on by a thread or you would have forsaken Jesus. 
God's invitation for us is to wake up, to clothe ourselves with Christ, to put on a helmet of salvation, remembering that our identity is in him, to put on a breastplate of righteousness, to remember that we in our own self is not righteous, it's alien, we have to put on Christ, to put on our belt of truth, to learn, to be skilled at meeting lies with the truth, to putting on our shoes of peace, to walk in the peace that Christ has given for us, to put up our shield of faith, to start responding not in reactivity but with faith and to pick up our sword, which is God's word, and to start slinging it at sake. Oh, once my sister told me when I had a little fight with some little boy, mama ain't raised no punks, God is saying Jesus ain't raised no punks. Gird up. Put on your, your, your armor. Put it on in weakness and in humility. But no, Satan is bringing a fight to you. Wake up and fight. Get on your face. How do you fight? The weapons of our warfare are not carnal. You don't fight by carnal means. You fight through prayer. You fight through fasting. You fight through seeking his face. You fight through listening to some, some spiritual music that's going to encourage you to respond like Christ. You fight in community with brothers and sisters in Christ. You fight by reminding yourself that this world is temporal and passing away and that what God has prepared for you, he has prepared for you. Everybody's hurting. Everybody has lack. Everybody thinks that they need something that somebody else has. God is not keeping something from you because he doesn't love you. He's already given you more in Christ than you deserve and he has laid up for you treasures that are protected and sealed and promised. Don't live for today. Live for the future. Finally, withstand testing with hope that God renews and restores. Man, battles are intense. Like Satan doesn't play fair. He knows where to hit us, how to punch. He goes below the belt. He confuses us. He makes things that are little seem big and things that are big seem small. Like, yo, he, 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 he brings it. He brings the energy. And sometimes we get knocked down and, hey, I'm discouraged more than I want to be. And I get knocked down more than I want to be. But here's the truth. The more and more we learn to respond by faith, the stronger our faith gets, the more we're able to fight the enemy with truth. And the more we're able to look back over time at areas of our life that Satan attacked us and we can see after we have withstood the test that God refreshed us and rewarded us. That's what the text says. After Jesus experienced this horrible test. The Bible says that angels came and served him. And the reason why some of us are stuck in the same pattern of hopelessness is because we don't trust that after trusting God and responding in obedience, that he will renew and restore us. He will. He'll send an angel. He'll send someone. That angel may come through a text message. That angel may come through a song. That angel may come through a prayer. That angel may come through a smile. That angel may come through a word from a friend. But he's going to send an angel. 
And ultimately, the reward is hearing, good and faithful servant, well done. What's funny is, (laughs) what's funny is, Satan told Jesus to jump off the pinnacle of the temple so that angels can be deployed to save them. Jesus withstands the test, and God, in his sense of humor, sends him angels. And every Sunday, we take a meal together called communion. A meal to remind us that Jesus is the bread of life and that Jesus allowed his blood to be shed for us. Jesus' body was broken and his blood shed so that we could have a relationship with God, be completely forgiven and fully loved and fully known. Here at Sojourn, we take a piece of bread, we dip it in wine or juice. The wine is marked by twine. Take whatever your conscience permits. We have gluten-free and alcohol-free communion to my left. There's an opportunity for you to talk to someone after service if you have questions or if you want to, to find encouragement. Sometimes we have to pursue that. And so go uh, in our prayer chapel after taking communion or just walk around and someone would love to meet you to talk with you. Those who are in the front, come to the front, back, go to the back. Gluten-free communion is to my left. Let's pray. God, you are faithful. You are good. You are true. We struggle. We are frail. We are faithless. And yet, in Christ, you love us as if we were Christ. And today, you don't stand over us condemning us, but inviting us into deeper relationship with you, to trust you. And so today, with my brothers and sisters in Christ, I say, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Encourage me, strengthen me to sit on your lap like a weaned child on the lap of his mother. In Christ's name, amen.